0: Abolition. 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 Costs for correctional
1: facilities, or in other words, prisons, quadrupling in the past 20 years to $52 billion in the U.S. With taxpayers on the hook for much of that, is there a way you can actually make crime pay? Our next guest says, you bet, Rava Shakatai, Senior Vice President at RBC Wealth Management, and she joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Rava. Thank you, Dennis. So let's just go broad picture first. The U.S. is the most prison-prone country in the world, right? Tell us about
2: that. We have 2.3 million inmates in the state prison system, in the federal prison system, and in local jails. There is a difference between prison and jail.
3: Yes, it's,
1: a, it's one year, but does matter. It's not first. Louisiana, one in 86 people. One in, in
2: 86, prison. absolutely. Uh, if you look at the country as a whole, it's one in 104. But if you look at both parolees and probation, in addition, it's one in 33 people who are in the state or federal prison system
1: right in california it has seven times as many prisoners as iran the entire country does uh,
2: yeah absolutely all right so Actually, there's, there's a- clearly
1: demand here now most times when people think about trying to make money on prisons they look at the publicly held prison for profit prison companies got cxw and Geo. but you think those guys might be kind of played out why is that
2: well both of those types of companies really happened post 9-11 when the U.S. Marshal Service and ICE, which is uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, got the contract to um, detain immigrants. So 50% of all immigrant detainees are in the private prisons. They adopted the approach, if you build it, they will come. But there's a mismatch with the needs. They have excess capacity, but it doesn't exactly fill the needs of the public prison system.
1: Okay, the beds aren't where they need to be. So if we get rid of CXW and GEO, instead, you like a couple of actual California state prison bonds. Tell us about those.
2: California operates just about the biggest prison system in the country. You have an occupancy rate of these prisons of 155%. The demand definitely outstrips the supply. So there's a, a segment of the fixed income market called lease revenue bonds. And this is a play on the municipal bond market. It's a more conservative approach to playing the prison market. A lease revenue bond that plays the prisons, compared to a general obligation bond of the same maturity, can yield 10 to 50 percent more.
1: A prison bond more than a regular government bond from a local government?
2: From a state government. Right. So from a, from a California GO perspective. I'm not talking talk about jail bonds. Those are highly speculative. And that's where you hear about the defaults in the prison market.
3: I
1: see. Now, um, in addition to California, uh, are all state bonds kind of states to look at for prison purposes? Do all state bonds pay higher than their regular general obligation bonds?
2: There's a couple of states that you can really look to, like California, Texas, Florida, New York, and Michigan. These are the biggest issuers of the lease revenue bonds that fund correctional facilities. So for an income hungry investor that's looking for relative value, I think there's a huge opportunity in these bonds that are absolutely underfollowed by the market.
1: And they're tax free as well, they're right?
2: Tax free income, absolutely. Okay.
1: And it, it part of this plays into your theme, you know, your clients call you the grave dancer because you like to put money into things where the customer has little choice. You feel like cigarettes, people are addicted, gambling, even has some addicts, and certainly in prison the customers have no choice but to be customers, don't they?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's no other place to go. I think that the country will stop at nothing to protect public spaces. So I think that the prison market's a great place to, to be.
4: So why
1: not profit from all right? Thank you very much for being with us. Rave it Shakatai. Appreciate it. <laughs> we were to
2: meet here by the
3: auction block. Ah,
5: he is. <laughs> Get him in, get him in that sun is hot and plenty bright let's get on business and get home tonight bitter in. auctioning slaves is a real high art bring that young gal roy she's good for a start bitter in, get em in now here's a real buy on about 15 her great grandmammy was a die homie queen just look at her face she sure ain't homely like she in the bible she's black but calmly Beat em in. gonna start her at three can I hear three? Step up, gents, take a good look, see. Cause I know you want her once you see her. She's young and ripe, make a darn good breeder. Bid them in. She's good in the field, she can sew and cook. Strip her down, Roy, let the gentleman look. She's full up front and ample behind. Examine her teeth if you got a mind. Bid in, get em in. Here's a bit of three from a man who's thrifty. 325, can I hear 350. Your money ain't earning you much in the bank? Turn around, Roy, let em look at her flanks. Bid in. 3 dollars is bidden, I'm looking for four. At $400, she's a bargain, sure. Four is the bid, $450. 5 $500 now, look alive. Bid em in, get them in. Don't mind them tears, that's one of her tricks. 5 dollars is bidden, who'll say six? She's healthy and strong and well equipped. Make a fine lady's maid when she's properly whipped. Bid them in. Six, $650, do not be slow. Seven is the bid, gonna let her go. At seven, she's going, going, gone. Pull her down, Roy, bring the next one on. Bid em in, get em in, bid em in.
0: Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. Abolition. 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 You just heard a Max Mix featuring a clip from Fox Business on prison investments followed by Bitter Men from the late great poet and author Oscar Brown Jr. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parker. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Yousef Hassan. Peace, Yusuf.
6: Hey, peace, Max. Peace and blessings upon you and all of our listening audience.
0: Amen, brother. You know, last week we talked about the martyrs of a movement. We called out the names of our lost ancestors with the help of abolitionist organizer Dennis Febo. This week, we have a very, very special guest who will be introduced shortly. Before we get into that, let's check in uh, and see how the week has been, because, you know, things are happening so fast. You said, man, we just passed Juneteenth, uh, you know, and there was a lot that happened before and after Juneteenth. Anything that uh, stood out for you this week? (laughs)
6: You know, the main thing that stood out for me, I want to, it's really two things. The the one major thing is, you know, the abolitionist call, the national call of abolitionists that we held this past Friday. And we were discussing uh, legislation and uh, laws that they're pushing to have changed and Well, Colorado was already obtained, but also discussing California, Utah, Nebraska, and New Jersey dealing with anti-slavery legislation being added to their constitution. So it was a great call. And I mean, everything else kind of like fell in place at that point because, you know, Juneteenth uh, depresses me, if that's the word I want to use. Because we know as slavery abolitionists that, you know, slavery didn't end. And so when I hear people talking about, you know, let's uh, celebrate Juneteenth, I'm usually sitting back saying, well, what are we celebrating? But as you know, you well know that there were many people who used that as a teaching situation for this past Friday,
0: Max. Yes. Yes. That was some of the things that made me very proud to see all across America, Juneteenth organizers who would normally celebrate the ending of slavery instead chose that opportunity to educate and not miseducate by talking about convict leasing and modern-day slavery through the prison systems. And the culmination of that for me was watching my brother uh, E. Stanley Richardson, who was one of the uh, poet laureates out in Florida, and he was speaking at the Cotton Club. And I'm like, brother broke the Internet. He said, first, let me say this. And then he went in about the 13th Amendment before doing his, his poem. And it really set the stage for the entire panel after that. You could see that uh, many of them had to add this topic to what they were going to say. And uh, that, that really felt good to hear it. And I even heard this dude out in England who's a freestyle rapper, a white rapper, and he had the audience pick mm-hmm. out, you know, randomly from the rap about, and they said uh, racism. So when he got to rapping about racism, he started talking about the 13th Amendment. I'm like, look at this. In England, Mm. there are people talking about the 13th Amendment who know more about it than the people here. (laughs) It was wonderful to see, man. But, you know, it has been a heck of a week, and we are very proud to see this movement grow as it has. And with that being said, how about if you introduce our guest? Sure. Let's bring in our
6: special guest. His name is Mark Charles. He's a native American activist, public speaker, consultant, and author on Native American issues, as well as a journalist, blogger, pastor, and computer programmer. A dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation, he is running as an independent candidate for president of the United States. For our listeners around the world, we here at Abolition Today, on this Father's Day and the first day of summer, are pleased to introduce to you the 2020 slavery abolitionist candidate Mark Charles. Welcome to Abolition Today, Mr. Charles. Happy Father's Day. Can we call you Mark?
4: I, yes, you can. I can, and thank you. It's great to be with you today. Great to have awesome, you. Awesome, man. Yes, indeed. A pleasure to meet you. you, you got to imagine how
0: excited we were when we found out about you a few weeks back, we didn't really know. Uh, but uh, we were looking for the option uh, instead of going with the two candidates that we have now. And there's a lot of people out there who are not only abolitionists, but just basically feel the same about what the choices are. And to hear uh, your stance on the 13th really blew my mind. So uh, if you'd like maybe say a few introductory words, and I'd like to hear your comment as well on the opening clip that we played in regards to prison stocks and
4: bars. Yeah, well, let me introduce myself traditionally. So, in our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say, Translated loosely, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toiheglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbakeetine. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Todachitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., and these are the lands that were traditionally of the Piscataway. Um, The Piscataway is a native nation that they lived here, they farmed here, they hunted here, they fished here. They were here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they are the stewards of these lands. And it is my honor to live on these lands today, and I want to honor the Piscataway people and thank them for the stewardship they've had of these lands for all of these years. Um, So I, I like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on no matter where I go around the country. Um, I I have to uh, – the song that came on, I came on in, in the middle of it, so I didn't hear all of it. But um, if you can re- maybe refresh me of the topic of it, and I'd love to to get in that well, conversation yeah, about I, it.
0: I'll give you a quick synopsis of what we just played. Uh, it was a clip from Fox News where they had an expert in investments called Ray Shakatai on, and she was explaining – how some of the best investments you could possibly make right now is with the prison industry, particularly in the jail bonds, which would give you back yes. 10 to 50% profit on these things. And they also talked about how these are captive customers uh, that are subject to the industries that profit from them. And, and they were saying it very proudly, like this is the way to go. And As you know, we all see this as slavery and human trafficking, so they're literally selling human beings through stocks, and bonds, prison stocks, and jail
4: bonds. Yeah. Yeah, and this is one of the major problems that we have as a nation. And the, the what I find most troubling is that a lot of people want to be shocked by what they heard on Fox News um, because there's this belief that, well, that's not the United States of America, but actually this very much is who we are. Um, you know, we are a nation that was founded, deeply rooted in white supremacy, and it, it, we never were able to take rid of it. In fact, I, I heard the comment you were making just um, before you introduced me um, about uh, one of the challenges of Juneteenth, and mm-hmm. I recently published a book on the doctrine of discovery. It's called Unsettling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. And we have two chapters in there on Abraham Lincoln. And one of the challenges with Juneteenth, and you're more you're probably better aware of this than I am, is yes, June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five marked the end of chattel slavery in the southern states, but the Thirteenth Amendment didn't get a, didn't get ratified until December Of that same year so it took almost six months for the northern states to decide that they wanted to ratify slavery because when Abraham Lincoln released the Emancipation Proclamation he actually excluded the northern states that allowed slavery in the in the um, the Lincoln-Douglas debates he literally stated that he had no intention of freeing the slaves in states where slavery already existed he was convinced that there was a physical difference between the white and black races, which ever forbid the two from living in terms of social and political equality. He had no intention of allowing black people to, to intermarry or to, to be judges or jurors um, or to even become citizens. And he was adamant that white people were superior. I mean, these, these were his statements throughout the Lincoln-Douglas debate. So he was looking for a way to institutionalize slavery. Now, the morning of his inauguration, Senate, the Senate passed what's called the Corwin Amendment. This is an amendment, and you, I'm sure you're aware of this too, that constitutionally protected slavery in the southern states where it already existed. And in his inauguration, Abraham Lincoln stated that he had no problem making what was already implied now explicit. And so he stated throughout his political life that he was actually looking for a way to institutionalize white supremacy and constitutionally protect slavery. And so when you read the 13th amendment, which was ratified after he died and the 13th amendment, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. It accomplished his goal. it institutionalized white supremacy in the criminal justice system, and it constitutionally protected the institution of slavery and So it is not shocking at all that we have news analysts and financial analysts advocating for people to buy stocks in for profit prisons yeah this is, this is absolutely you live in the United States of America. this is how we are the nation of opportunity this is what capitalism we're at its finest and so this capitalism. is you know what, what what i'm most offended by is the people who think oh that's not who we are no that absolutely is who we are and this is the challenge we need to have i mean it's embarrassing to me that i'm a candidate for president mm-hmm. in the year 2020 And that one of the planks of my platform has to be I want to abolish slavery. Mm. I mean, that's embarrassing that I live in a nation where I actually have to say that.
0: I might say, Mark, I'm actually proud that you are saying it. Because for 156 years, no one was saying it in these ways. So uh, you have been... Used as a vessel by the higher powers To bring these things to light And we're happy That's right. to hear that That is the case I just want to make note also that The book uh, that he mentioned Which he is an author of And that is Un Unsealing Truths The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery As well as a video of what you said Regarding Juneteenth uh, On Juneteenth Are all available at Abolition Today If you want to go and pick up the book and hear what he said about Juneteenth. So, yeah, man, that is the, the problem that we're dealing with right now, uh, Mark, is they're doing it openly. And we love to show that here on this program. We usually let them speak for themselves. And that's what we open up the program with them, telling you exactly what they're doing to your children. Uh, they are selling them on the open market. And also, there's a missing link that I would like to uh, ask you about. We know. That how this came to be the 13th Amendment all the way from 1777 through its incarnations up to 1865 when it was passed. Uh, but the thing that isn't spoken of a lot is the transition of what occurred from the individual being able to own slaves to the state taking you, and the way that they did that was through convict leasing. Uh, would you like to speak on that topic?
4: Well, what I would like to start with, I would actually like to take this back a few years, um, a few hundred years, actually, because where this problem is rooted is the topic of my book, which is the Doctrine of Discovery. So the Doctrine Mm -hmm. of Discovery, it's a series of papal bulls written in in the 1400s says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. The, the doctrine discovery is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are less than human and their land is yours to take. So this is literally the doctrine that let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people because they did not believe them to be human. This is the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world which was already inhabited by millions and claim to have discovered it. If you think about it, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. It's called stealing. The fact that we have statues, monuments, history books referring to Columbus as the discoverer of America... This reveals the implicit racial racial bias, which is that Native Americans, African Americans, people of color are not fully human. Now, this doctrine is what gets embedded into the foundations of the nation. So the Constitution, which again starts with the words, we the people, Article 1, Section 2, defining who is and who is not covered by this Constitution, who is and who is not a part of this union, It never mentions women, it specifically excludes natives, and it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. And so this is where this dehumanization, this this implicit racial bias of white supremacy, gets embedded into the actual foundations of our country. And we have never rooted those things out of our foundations. And so that's where I, as a campaign, I just released my 100-day plan the other day, my my first 100 days in office. And in my my first 100 days in office, I want to remove the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language from the Constitution. I actually have on my blog on my website, um, I have an article. I posted up there just the other day where I go through and I edit the Constitution. I use the strike-through font. So there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns all throughout the Constitution. I take those he, him, and his, strike-through font, replace them with a them, or their, or they, or with a proper noun. The clause in the 13th Amendment that keeps slavery legal in prison, strike-through font. You never should have said that. Let's just abolish slavery, period the clause in Article 1, Section 2 that, that excludes natives and counts African to three-fifths of a person. Yeah, let's just take that out. We never should have said that. And I go through the Constitution. I don't change checks and balances. I don't change balance of power. I don't change anything else. All I do is I remove the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language. And this is my goal for my first 100 days in office is I want to present these changes to our Congress, the house and the senate i want them to pass it and i want the states to ratify it within my first 100 days so beginning in late april early may we can actually begin to have a conversation about how do we govern these lands now that we've made some foundational level adjustments to our constitution so we the people for the very first time actually means all the people
0: uh, Mark, if I may interject, uh, from what I understand, there are two ways to be able to change the federal constitution in regards to its me- amendments, much like what occurred in the 18th Amendment becoming the 21st, it has to be repealed and replaced. Uh, there, You can do it through a congressional convention or through an Article 5 Convention of States. And as we speak, there's yeah. actually an Article 5 Convention of States being formed. I believe they are at about 26 states and they only need like 34 Uh, the problem with that particular movement is it's dominated by uh, right-wingers or Republican uh, uh, extremists or centrists, but it certainly has no voice for people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, Were you aware of the Convention of States?
4: I've heard there there was talk of it. I have not been at all involved with the details of it. I've just heard that there was talk of something like that. But this is actually why I'm running for president, because – I have learned that um, especially when we do this by committee at the governmental level, which is dominated by white landowning men, they have very little interest in changing the foundations because they benefit them. And so I'm running for president as an independent, so I can actually have my platform be advocating for the changes I want to make and I can bring those changes directly to the American people. And my whole campaign is actually about decentering the voice and the influence, the money of white landowning men. And I'm I'm actually focusing a lot of my energy on centering the voices of people from the margins. And we actually have a strategy to to get me into the White House that doesn't depend on the the support, the money, or even the vote of white landowning men. I think we can get there without, by decentering them, without being dependent upon them or their money or even their vote.
0: I think Bernie Sanders was an example of how that could be done, too. And so we definitely can get that type of thing done. And hopefully here at Abolition Today with our listeners, uh, we can help, too, moving forward. Uh, in that direction and help you in any way. I'd also like to add to that uh, while we're on the topic, while we're speaking of this, there is organizations forming not just nationally but internationally in order to help support this particular cause. State by state, we're organizing in order to take out the exception clause to voter initiatives or to insert brand-new anti-slavery language into state constitutions. We've already got two done, and we've got about a dozen more on uh, the way to being done. Within the next two years, our goal is to create momentum as we move towards the federal amendment, which will, as I said, require either a convention of states or a congressional convention. So the machine for you to get this done is already in place,
4: brother. I just wanted to let you know. That is great news. I'm very, I'm very happy to hear people who are working on this and. Um, You know, I I think these these things definitely, it's time that we remove these things from from our foundations. Um, You know, the theme of my campaign is I want to build a nation where, for the very first time, we the people truly means all the people. Um, It's never meant that throughout the entire history of our country. And I think it's, it's time that as a nation we make an intentional decision that that's what we want our country to be about. And that starts with the process of fixing our foundations, removing the racism, Yusuf, the sexism, sexism, and the white supremacy. Well? And Say it
6: again, slavery. Max, I didn't hear you.
0: I- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, Mark. I was just asking if Yusuf also had a question that he wanted to ask you. And uh, I did yeah. want to bring up a particular incident after that where I want your opinion on it. It's something that's happening today and it's very important. Uh, Yusuf, was there okay. something you want to ask me Particular? Well,
6: I, I wanted us to go back in the direction of the convict leasing, because Mark took us back into history, which was great, because it just gave me something else that I need to study up on more with the doctrine of discovery. And so, you know, you had asked, Max, you asked earlier about, you know, the aftermath of the passing or the ratification of the 13th Amendment, that we know what happened next, and we wanted Mark to go into that
4: yeah if you could actually let me know what i'm what do you mean by the convict leasing if you could um
0: what well, for instance fill me in in Texas, on that. Uh, about three months after the last alleged slaves were informed that they had been freed in Texas, Texas started the convict leasing system there where they would criminalize African Americans all across America. It wasn't just Texas the North had already been doing it. But they criminalized African-Americans and Native Americans and people of color all across the country. And then they would incarcerate them and put them to work for free in the mines, on the railroad tracks, or even back to the plantations where they had just been enslaved at. And they would work them literally to death. There was a book by a man named J. Mansoony. It's called One Dies, Get Another, Convict Leasing in the American South, uh, 1866 to 1928. And he, he talks about how convicts being so plentiful were seen as disposable. So it was really worse than slavery, this period of time that occurred immediately after emancipation. And although millions were not subject to this, many had gained their freedom, hundreds of thousands were subject to a condition worse than slavery. And that yeah. convict leasing goes up till today. We have companies like Starbucks that uses prison labor for their holiday packages, or Walmart uses prison labor. Even AT&T, and during the election recently uh, with uh, Bloomberg, he had to admit he had been using prison labor to make robocalls on his uh, behalf, who were getting 11 cents an hour. So convict leasing kind of brings it all together, like what do they do with these people? How are they making that money on them? How are they oppressing them? That convict leasing was it, and I was just curious about your thoughts on that.
4: Oh, so while I haven't dealt with that term specifically, that absolutely was Abraham Lincoln's vision. You know, he had no intention of making citizens of of African Americans. He had no intention of seeing them as equal. Um, he he did not believe that Declaration of Independence applied to them, to 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 African people, and so that was absolutely his vision. Was what by adding that clause into the 13th Amendment, this allowed a white judge, a white jury, a white law enforcement officer to, on a whim, incarcerate a person of color and essentially enslave them. That's why we have the clause. Um, And so we probably saw it very explicitly, as you just described, in the convict leasing that took place back back in Texas, immediately after emancipation. But we see it today just like you described and i was more aware of what's going on today with the prison labor and the the for-profit prisons um these are things that we absolutely need to get rid of um, because that's one way that it looks for this slavery to be constitutionally protected and even institutionalized and so yeah i'm i i was not aware of the term convict leasing but It doesn't surprise me at all because that was Abraham Lincoln's vision.
0: It was, and, you know, we actually have the proof of that in his own words. Um, There was a letter that he wrote to Justice Stevens uh, back in December 22nd, 1860. Uh, It was just, I think it was three days after the South has succeeded. And he told him, um, do the people of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them about their slaves? If they do, I wish to assure you, as once a friend and still, I hope, not an enemy, that there is no cause for such fears. The South would be in no more danger in this respect, than it was in the days of Washington. I suppose, however, this does not meet the case. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That is the I suppose the rub. It is certainly the only substantial difference between us. You are truly a Lincoln. And he when he was saying restricted, he was talking about convict leasing which was already being used in the North.
4: Yeah, people so there's there such know? a there was such a mythology on Abraham Lincoln. Not only was he an blatant white supremacists who didn't give a crap about black lives. Um, there's a quote hanging at the Lincoln Memorial that states, my primary object in the struggle is to preserve the union. If I could save the union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save by freeing someone, leaving others alone, I would also do that. There's a quote of Lincoln hanging at the memorial that literally says, according to him, black lives don't matter. hmm of course, we mm-hmm. have the 13th Correct. Amendment, we have this letter you just described, but another thing people don't know about Abraham Lincoln is in 1862, he signed the Pacific Railway Act and the Homestead Act. This provided the land mm-hmm. and the resources to complete the Transcontinental Railway, which had, of its five major routes, the three primary routes, one went um, from Omaha, Nebraska, out to San Francisco, another one went from um Uh, Duluth, Minnesota, over to Seattle, and the southern route went through the territory of New Mexico and came out near Los Angeles. Within two and a half years of signing that bill, after the hanging of the Dakota 38 in Minnesota, after the Sand Creek Massacre in in Colorado, Wyoming, and after um, the long walk for the Navajo and Mescalero Apache, Abraham Lincoln had literally ethnically cleansed all of the natives from the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and the territory of New Mexico to make way for the Transcontinental Railway, making him one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation. Mm. He was an I can't abhorrent again sort
0: of course you say it louder so the people in the back in here. <laughs> but you know, we're on the same page with this brother. We we understand Lincoln was very deceptive. He had betrayed the abolitionists Movement time and time again At one time he promised the South That if they just laid down their arms They could keep their slaves for another seven years It must have made Frederick Douglass Head spin on his shoulders when he did that You know uh, There's a recent case that has come up I'd like to bring to your attention And maybe get your opinion on it Uh, As you know, by making slavery Illegal in the Constitution It opens up the door now For lawsuits against the system Without the protection of the slavery clause to keep it from being, and this article came out uh, just on the 20th of this month, just a couple of days ago. It says a federal lawsuit filed against the Arizona Department of Corrections, Rehabilitation, and Reentry accuses the state of practicing slavery through its use of private prisons. Five inmates at the NAACP filed the class action lawsuit this week in U.S. District Court in Arizona. The lawsuit claims Arizona is practicing slavery. By sending inmates to private prisons to, quote, generate revenues and profits for the monetary benefit of corporate owners, shareholders, and executive management, unquote. That is a recent lawsuit that is testing the waters now. How do you feel about that, uh, and what would you like to say?
4: yeah I, I actually had seen that article about that lawsuit, and I'm glad that's being filed. I think those things need to be tested. Um, again, one of the the way I would respond to that is one of the most freeing days of my life as an American citizen, also as a Navajo man, was the day I acknowledged, both personally and publicly that the Constitution of the United States does not exist to protect me as a Navajo man. That's not why we have a Constitution. The reason we have a Constitution is to protect the interests of white landowning men. What this meant is I had to stop pretending or trying to convince myself or others that the Constitution advocated for something that it didn't actually say. And it allowed me to see more clearly why we have the challenge that we have. And it also helped me to understand what is the best way to correct these problems. So I am, the and and as a native man, a lot of the struggle that our community is wrestling with is land, where this doctrine of discovery was used as the legal precedent for land titles as recent as it started back in eighteen twenty three. It was referenced in a court case in two thousand five, basically saying because natives were savages, we were only occupants of the land. White Americans, white people had the fee title right of discovery to the land, so therefore they're the true title holders. This was the, the case, I, I have a TEDx talk up on, online. It's called We the People, The Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. I go through step-by-step step, both the 1823 and the 2005 case, helping people understand that in 2005, that opinion was one of the most white supremacist opinions written in my lifetime. And it was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so as a Native man, I actually work hard in the work that I do to try and keep these issues out of court. Why? Because the court doesn't exist to protect native peoples or black people or women. The court exists to protect white landowning men. Mm -hmm. And this is why in my first 100 days, rather than suing or rather than trying to take something to court, I actually want to edit the constitution because that's where the problem lies. Most people think the United States of America is white supremacist, racist, and sexist in spite of our foundations. No, that's not true. The United States of America is white supremacist, racist, and sexist because of our foundations. That's where it's rooted. And so the way the, court, the, way the Constitution is written today, that case will not be successful because the Constitution keeps slavery legal in prison. How so
0: can you court edit the Constitution? is not
4: where you want to fix it. That's where we have to fix the Constitution. Uh,
0: I, I, I'd like to ask, because as I said earlier, I'm only aware of two ways where the Constitution yeah. can be edited. and, and how, yeah. So how would you be able to do that without those, using those two avenues? I would love to find a fast no, way. No, no. So, so what, what I will do... Yeah.
4: If I become president, after my inauguration, I will present. And the document I'm working with is online on my blog where I've edited the Constitution. I I don't amend it. I don't want to amend it. Because when you amend it, you still have to read through this very white supremacist, racist, and sexist document and then get to the end and says, oh, when we actually said this, we meant that. Or when we said this, we didn't mean that. No, I think we need to edit it so when you read it, you can actually – read it in a way that presents a mm-hmm. quality. Now I spoke to a, to a, a constitutional lawyer, what I want when I'm proposing is unprecedented. In other words, it's never been done before, right. but there's no reason why, why we can't do it. Right. It, I mean, we're Americans. Yeah. This is our constitution. This isn't some holy book ordained by God. No, this is a few thoughts stolen from Native peoples, written down by some very racist, sexist, and white supremacist man to protect themselves. And we absolutely can edit it. (laughs) There's not a corporation today running off of bylaws that were written in the 1700s. I guess right, if we right. got a president who's an abolitionist. We can get things
0: done, you know. Right, <laughs> absolutely, we can get things done. Uh I,
3: you and, know, I
0: got a question that everybody's been asking, and I, I wanted to get it in time. Uh, I don't know how much time you had today, and I am so appreciative, all of we, are, all of us, are here that you took your time now. during Father's Day to talk with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. But everybody, You're welcome. this is a very important you. conversation, so I'm glad I could join you. Fantastic. Here's the question that everybody's been asking me. How did you become aware of the
4: 13th Amendment? What was it that brought it to your attention? So I began working with the doctrine of discovery. I, I moved – I was pastoring a church actually in Denver, and I was working with the history of the church and what it had done in colonizing indigenous peoples all over the, all over the world, actually. And mm-hmm. I moved back to the reservation, um, the Navajo Nation, and I live with my family for we were there for eleven years. For three years we lived in a very remote part of the reservation. We were three miles off, six miles off nearest paved building on a dirt road, lived in a one-room traditional hogan, no running water, no electricity, out of the middle of nowhere. And during the years living there, I began to experience the historical trauma. I began to experience the the, the, the brokenness of our community. I began to, to see the, the oppression and the systemic oppression against our people. And there was a book written um, around that time by a a native um, author. His name is uh, Stephen Newcomb called Pagans in the Promised Land. And it it goes into the doctrine of discovery. And I became aware through some of his writings and some other work I was doing on the doctrine of discovery. And I began studying that and learning more about that. And I actually began Lecturing on it and talking about it, and so I was reading the Constitution, and I was looking at um, how this doctrine had been embedded into the Constitution. And I actually was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was lecturing um, on the doctrine of discovery, and I was talking about Article 1, Section Two and a few other places where there was this blatant dehumanizing of both Natives and African people in the constitution and uh i was looking at the 14th amendment i think and how that amendment um i forget what it was anyway but someone came up to me afterwards and said mark have you ever read the 13th amendment and i said no i haven't and they just handed me the text of it and i read it and i saw that clause i'm like oh my gosh like it's so, it's right there. All this I've been talking mm-hmm. all around it for all these years, and I just read mm-hmm. it in black and white. I'm like, oh my gosh! And it completely just it immediately it went into into my whole critique of the Constitution, and how systemically white supremacist, racist, and racist it was. Um, and you know, once you once you kind of break through the, the mythology of the constitution that the thing exists to, to to um espouse equality and you realize it actually was written for the exact opposite purpose, you know, then you can you can kind of see these things more clearly. So already my mythology of the of the Constitution has been broken down. So when someone handed me that the text of the thirteenth Amendment, I was just like, oh my gosh, look at how horrible this is and immediately added it into my lecture and began doing some analysis on You know, what what did this mean? in looking at the research of our incarceration rates and, um, you know, um, and especially the racial disparity in our incarceration rates and everything else. And then it just yeah, it just fits perfectly into the whole purpose of our foundations. Um, So, you then, and this was even before I knew about Lincoln. You know, but this was just. So I saw the Thirteenth Amendment, and there's that this great. You know, there's the the movie Thirteen. There's also the book um, uh, The New Jim Crow, where Michelle Alexander does a great job of connecting uh, the Thirteenth Amendment to mass incarceration today. Um, And so I I had that piece, and then it wasn't until maybe four years ago when I was writing a section of my of our book um, on Lincoln. When I realized that, because while my, my mythology of the Constitution had broken down, my mythology of Lincoln hadn't broken down yet. I didn't understand how, what a blatant white supremacist he was. Um, and it wasn't until I was writing our book and I began researching him more that it just became so clear to me how, you know, when you read his, his, um, his writings on, on the Lincoln-Douglas debates You read his speeches, you go back and look at his rhetoric, you look at the policies he advocated for. The man was a blatant white supremacist on par with Adolf Hitler um, as far as his genocide and his ethnic cleansing policies as native peoples and his complete disregard for the life of of African people. Um, And once I began to see him more clearly, I was able to make the connection between him and the 13th Amendment, which then led into the modern manifestations of slavery today. And this is what makes Lincoln so dangerous, is because his entire reputation is that he was the friend of people of color. He was the friend of black people. I mean, this is, this mm-hmm. is the abhorrent lie about him. When actually mm-hmm. he probably was, he was, I would argue, he was more damaging The African American community and the Native community than Andrew Jackson was. Because not only was he a blatant white supremacist and ethnic cleansing president, but he gave our country the tools that we are using today to keep people of color oppressed.
0: You're absolutely right. uh, Thank you for that.
4: I stood at the Lincoln Memorial, if I can just I still Link Memorial, I actually, I like to go there on, on President's Day, because I like to deconstruct his legacy for people on, on the day that honors him. And I've stood in front of that plaque at the memorial that says black lives don't matter. You know, I was, if I could save a game without freeing a single slave, I would do it. I've stood there, and I've watched people go by that sign, and they read it. It's a plaque, like four feet tall, two and a half feet wide, etched in marble, hanging there, the blatant mm-hmm. white supremacist quote. And I've stood there, and I've watched people, white people, brown people, even black people, go through and read that sign and move on. And I stop I them, and I stop them, and I say, did you read that? And they're like, what do you mean? Uh, did you read what that quote said? I said, that quote is saying, according to Lincoln, black lives don't matter. They look at me like I'm crazy. They look back at the plaque. They read it face just drops, they take out their phones and they're like, I can't believe it says that. And they start taking pictures and tweeting them out to their friends and texting them. (laughs) They're like, do you believe that's, that's the, the dangerous thing about Abraham Lincoln is he gave our country the tools that we are using today to dehumanize people of color and we hold him up as the greatest president of our nation. One of the reasons we do that is because is because victors write the history books. So yeah. had Nazi Germany won World War II, how would their history books have recorded Adolf Hitler? Oh, he's the greatest president ever, greatest leader ever. How would their yeah. history books record? The Holocaust. Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. If they won, they'd be like, what Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. Mm -hmm. This is exactly how we treat Lincoln. Because our nation has never lost a war that matters, and we've written our own history for 250 years, we've been able to construct these mythologies, and people believe them. And so while... Abraham Lincoln is every bit as abhorrent as Adolf Hitler. But because we won the wars as a country of the United States of America, and therefore we wrote the history, we've just completely changed the narrative.
0: I just shared um, some photos of that actual monument that you're referring to on our cage, Abolition Today, when I was out there, I I felt the same way. and took some pictures of it. I shared it on our page so our viewers can check it out there. And thank you for that answer. A lot of people remember the day they found out because it is such a shock to the system. Like you said, it's right there, and it's always been there. And we have been taught something completely different. Uh, So now our our listening audience is very educated on the topic, so you can speak freely. You know what I mean? They know what you're talking about. Uh, We've been uh, building up an abolitionist movement now for a couple of decades, brother, and they are ready to – they've been looking for you. (laughs) They've been looking for you. I am very glad to hear that. that. (laughs) Absolutely. I've stood aside. So far we've helped congresspeople, uh, senators, uh, mayors, uh, governors even in Georgia. uh, uh, All we have stuck with them on abolitionist platforms. So it's beautiful that we now have someone running for president. Now, I know that my co-host, Yusuf wanted to follow up on some things as well, so I want to pass the mic to him, if you don't mind. Sure.
6: So you touched on a lot of great things, and I thank you for that. You know, when we talk about slavery, you know, whenever any type of uh, human rights violation occurring like slavery, wholesale violations of constitutional rights will be expected. So if you don't mind, could we take a look at, Certain amendments, how would you respond to these rampant violations, say, for instance, for the Fourth Amendment?
4: I'm trying to recall the Fourth Amendment off the top of my head. I'm, give me a Searching second. Seizure. Right. It's
0: from,
4: okay. Search and seizure.
0: Right. And, you know, we have the access seizure laws uh, that they have right now. A lot of these no-knock warrants, for instance, that just happened Recently, uh, when a woman was killed, that was where they seize your property, and you don't even have to be guilty. Your property is considered guilty, and you don't get to get it
4: Yeah, I mean, and this is—I mean—all of these things are just once because of the way the Constitution is written, which the implicit bias and the explicit bias of the Constitution is Mm -hmm. to protect white landowning men. Then all of these amendments can get used in some pretty abhorrent ways. So I I have not done a lot of research into the Fourth Amendment, but it doesn't surprise me at all that if that amendment gets used to take the property and to seize property from people of color. Again, this is the purpose of the Constitution. I am under no illusion whatsoever anymore that the Constitution exists to protect me. And so, as as a Navajo man, and so it, it would not surprise me at all. I mean, I, I've done more work on the Second Amendment, which I think is also deeply, deeply troubling um, because of the way that the Constitution was written. But, um, yeah, I, that does not well, no, surprise probably. me at all. Well, no, it's,
6: it's good because, you know, we've covered it on many of our episodes. We've done the myth of the Sixth Amendment. We've talked about the money machine, the 13th Amendment trap door. You know, the different aspects yeah. of the Eighth Amendment and dealing with the death penalty and also dealing with the, un, you know, the, uh, un, uh, stuck on words right now. Uh, the other half of it. The, uh, what am I looking for, Max, on Eighth Amendment? I just caught a uh, brain cramp.
0: Uh, the protection from excessive bills, fines, and fees, yes. uh, as well as, from cruel and unusual punishment, and unusual both punishment I got stuck on that for a second Right yeah. So I guess what he was saying Is we have found Through our research That the amendments themselves are good amendments They protect us from certain things But those who swear to defend those amendments And defend the rights within them Are the ones who are actually violating Them every day For instance the police and even the soldiers so if we had the protection of those amendments, we would be on equal standing with everybody else. But minorities don't get the protection of that. For instance, the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment guarantees you to a fair and speedy trial by a jury of your peers. But 95% of all federal cases end in a plea bargain. And because of that, it shows that the Sixth Amendment is a myth. It doesn't exist. So these are rights we're entitled to that should be defended, and people swear oaths to defend them, but then they turn around and violate them instead.
4: And, and that's where I just point back to the purpose of the Constitution, the reason it was written, is to protect white landowning men. It doesn't exist to give you a speedy trial as a black man. It doesn't exist me to, as a speedy trial as a, as a native man. That's not why we have a Constitution. It's there to protect the interests of white landowning men. And so once we acknowledge that, and this is why my first 100-day plan is so important, because if we can take out the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from the Constitution, then we can actually maybe do something with this document in a way that makes sense and apply it in, in a way that, that's helpful for everybody. But at the moment, because of the implicit bias and the explicit bias of the Constitution, it is ripe for abuse. And it's used that way constantly against primarily African-Americans, Native Americans, and women. Those are the three groups specifically excluded from the Constitution and and not given, um, humanity is not recognized by that document. The other issue with the Constitution is, is because it's rooted in the doctrine of discovery and the values of the doctrine of discovery are exploitation and profit, this makes the assumption of the Constitution also exploitation and profit. Um again, for white landowning men. So yeah, these are all I I, I think I have you looked closely at the Second Amendment?
0: Uh yes, and I also am aware that the Second mm-hmm. Amendment was inspired by the fear of slavery rebellions. At one point here in South Carolina it was required that every adult male own a rifle and be a slave catcher, that if they did not catch any of these runaway slaves, they themselves would be subject to fines or imprisonment. And that was one of the uh, inspirations for the Second Amendment as we know it today. Even after the 85 black people did not have the right to own guns because of that.
4: Yeah, I've done a whole analysis on the Second Amendment. So the Second Amendment, it it establishes two things. Um, It establishes a militia a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a a free state. And then the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the two things it does, first we have the militia. Now the militia has been used absolutely throughout the South to run away people who were enslaved. Um, That is very clear. The militia has also been used throughout the history of this nation to ethnically cleanse and commit genocide against Native peoples. If you read the, the Declaration of Independence, which, again, starts with the words, all men are created equal, but 30 lines later, in the same declaration, it refers to Natives as merciless Indian savages. Um, in, this, in, in the declaration, it says, you know, but, but the king um, uh, brought upon the borders of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages. One of the reasons they had militias was to protect themselves from these savages who were occupying the lands this nation claimed to manifest destiny over. And so, you know, you have, you have a quote, um, and that, let me actually read this quote to you because it's, it's very abhorrent. Um, uh, it was in 1851 in California, Peter Burnett, who was the first governor of California, and in his State of the State Address, Back in 1851, let me read to you what he said. He said that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct, must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. So he's not saying famine is broken out and we can't feed these people. And he's not saying disease has struck and we can't stop its spread. He's literally saying, we can't stop killing these people until they become extinct. Yeah. This is why we have militias. To capture slaves and to ethnically cleanse native peoples. Now, the second half of the amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, right? So it's using language of the people. Well, this amendment was written in the 1790s, just as part of, the, of um, you know, the First Amendment's past, the uh, and the Constitution begins with the words, we the people. But in Article I, Section 2, when it defines who the Constitution applies to, never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths. So literally, people is white men. And it's white landowning men who can vote. So when they said the right of the people to keep and bear arms, they meant white men. Now this is very clear when you look at. Um, we're, there's been a lot of talk about Tulsa lately because of Juneteenth and and the president having his first rally there. And of course you you obviously you, your listeners are very aware of of the massacre, at Black Wall Street of Tulsa, right? And mm-hmm. the abhorrent things that happened there. That didn't. That was in 17. And that was in 19 1921. 21. Mm-hmm. And that that did not result in gun control, right? Right. But in the 1960s, the Black Panthers got the idea that the second Amendment applied to them, so they armed themselves and began policing the police in Northern California. And then in an act of protest one day, some of the Black Panthers walked through the capital of California. Now, they were detained, but they could not be held because they weren't breaking any laws. Within three months of that, California had bipartisan gun control supported by the NRA. Why? Because the Second Amendment does not exist to give people of color the right to bear arms. It exists to give white people the right to bear arms.
0: That is uh, very much true. I would like to also bring in some instances that I'd like to get your opinion on as a potential president. If you were president, how you, would you deal with these things that have already occurred and are very likely occurring as we speak? Uh, one of those, I don't know if you're familiar with it, is called the Kids with Cash Scandal, where judges in Pennsylvania were found to have been taking kickbacks for incarcerating youths into their detention centers there, the for-profit private prisons. We're giving them, these two judges as much as $2 million a year or more, depending on how many kids they put into these cells without trials, without representation, and sometimes for as little as throwing steak at a, your father or writing on your desk. Uh, so they were being incarcerated for that. They pled guilty and got 28 years in prison. These were just the ones that were caught. So as a president, how would you prevent this type of thing from occurring?
4: I'm going to abolish slavery. Again, this is, the, the reason these things happen is because this institution, the for-profit prisons, exists because slavery is still constitutionally protected and white supremacy is institutionalized. And so the way we have to address this, you know, and, and this is one of the challenges that we face. So right now, after the, this very public lynching of George Floyd, we have a lot of debate about criminal justice reform and policing reforms, right? And we're hearing everything from, well, we have to, we, um, Joe Biden said we have to train cops to shoot people in the knees instead of in the chest. Um, we're thinking about banning certain chokeholds. There's even debate about defunding the police. Now, all of these are probably need to be looked at in some capacity, but if we enact those things without abolishing slavery and de-institutionalizing white supremacy, nothing's really gonna change. Right. So we have, right. To, we have to change it at the foundational level first. And then if we do that, if we actually de-institutionalize white supremacy and remove the constitutional protection for slavery, then we can actually go through and begin to reform these things. But as long as that white supremacy is institutionalized and and slavery is protected, nothing's ever going to... it, it It may be a different shade of gray, but nothing's really going to change. And so this is where, yes, if we can... Abolish slavery, take that clause out of the Thirteenth Amendment. Then, obviously, for-profit prisons are now illegal. Like they, we can't have these. Amen. And now we have We're a constitutional mandate that says we can't have these. And then obviously that is we so can't nasty. have judges feeding them into the system. Right. And so, so this is where, and this is this is where the Democrats are going to try and fool you and say, well, we're more serious about this than the Republicans. No, they're not. Because they are just as opposed to changing the foundations. Both parties are opposed to changing the foundations. They will continue to debate endlessly about what kind of reforms can we do 50 feet above ground When the problem is that the foundations of the building are broken. And neither party is interested in fixing it at that level. I promise you Joe Biden is not going to abolish slavery. I promise you that. (laughs) We know that.
0: Our our promotional video for this week uh, exposed Joe Biden and how he felt during the Clinton crime bill. And what he said about us then and how little he cared about us and how much he knew it was going to affect us. So that was our promotional video for this, for this week's uh, show to let people yeah. know what was going on with Joe Biden. Hey, real quick, I don't know if you're going to be able to be here with us the whole time, but we got about a little bit more than 20 minutes left in our, this, in our program uh, before we get into our final comments and, and closing segment. I'd like to play a musical track and then come back. Will you stay with us a little while longer?
4: Yeah, I can stay a few more minutes, that's fine
0: Awesome Okay, okay Then what I'm going to do is go ahead and uh, bring in a song Called Then Us It's by Sidewalk Chalk Shoulder season With Rico Sistine the MC And Margot Marion on the vocals Then Us All oh, you-
3: we
7: They say poor might be the new black, but it's the old one. Race is just a new class. I was told once how the Irish became white. Kenyans, Jamaicans, Cubans, Algerians, Brazilians, nations, and more became black. The Moors were a race fast. That's trapped against Othello. Puritans used to view blackness as of the devil. Nation in Islam said whiteness was of the devil. But through it all the same, that is, he's kept going. And in my heart of hearts, I feel for those who fought as hard as they could against all the gods. And it's time to be God as far as watching things fall apart. But once a times, he becomes a C1000, what can we do about it? When it's them, us, them, us, them, us, them, all we hear is. All we hear is them, us, them, us,
3: them, us. Thank you
7: I think it's from some neighbourhood of block. Wonder why I cringe at the word neighborhood watch. When a flip of a switch is all it takes for good cops to become a killer cops. Or good protesters to stop screaming, kill the cops. Will it stop? I say yes when I'm feeling optimistic. Cause opposition of opposition is not a given. For some reason, all we hear is them us, them us, them, us, them,
3: us, them. All we hear is Yay. Are here to damn us? Damn us? Damn us? Damn? Are we here to?
0: That was then my sidewalk chalk show this season. What good is a revolution that don't have no music? And we'll be killing it here with the music on Abolition Today. You can find all of that available on our YouTube page, at Abolition Today, on YouTube. Uh, just look for our Abolition Music playlist. Welcome back. We are here with presidential candidate Mark Charles, myself, Max Parthas, and Yusuf Hassan. You can find him on markcharles2020.com. Please make sure you go check him out and support if you didn't think you had a choice before now you do uh mark we're back and uh, we really appreciate you hanging out with us brother what did you think of the song we played?
4: yeah i like that i I like the music you have here it's it the messages are good i picked up on the word reparations in there and i would thought we might Uh i don't know if you guys talk about that here on your show but it reminded me of some stuff i've said about that in the past on my campaign
0: we do talk about reparations, but we only talk about it as part of the plan. We cannot even conceive of seeking rep- reparations before ending slavery. Right. Because if we do something like that, as uh, S.A. Uh, explained to me what happened to her in Canada out there, uh, they would treat it like a blank check after that. Like, we've already paid for it, so now we can do whatever we want to do. So for us, uh, the reparation comes after we end
4: slavery. I could not agree with you more and that's something I've said complete I've said continually on the campaign trail is. Um, I believe there obviously is some reparations that are due, but if you look at the example of um, class action lawsuits where you have a lawsuit against a corporation and they usually get settled before they go to court and if you have a piece of that settlement. To, in the class action lawsuits, and you get the notification that you can go get your piece of the of the settlement, they will make you sign a document that says you give up your right to pursue any other legal issues with this matter right and so if If white America is allowed to pay the fine for slavery before they actually abolish slavery. I can pretty much guarantee it will never be abolished. And so I would completely agree with what you're saying, which is I, I think it's something that has to be talked about on the horizon, but but it if it comes too quickly or if, if it comes prematurely, it could actually result in getting the injustice corrected. Mm-hmm. We and, look at it like I if mean, we
0: that, do this, if we do this, we are damning our own children to a perpetual slavery with no way out because we, they've already yeah. paid for it. And, you know, our long yeah. bread would be $10,000 tomorrow if we got a million dollars. You know how they do. <laughs> but you said, I, I think you wanted to ask a and then I want to give Mark the opportunity to give us any final comments or uh, how you, how we can help you any way at all. And whatever else you want to say, but i I want to give uh you a chance to ask these final questions, okay
6: sure uh I don't know if you were able to catch uh any of uh trump's Trump and Biden's comments this week uh These are people that you're potentially running against, so do you have any comments that you would like to mention about either of their campaign promises or what or their positions?
4: Well, well, the that's challenge with Trump <laughs> and Biden is when you look at the, – the reason our nation has a simplistic two-party system is because white landowning men have found that that's the best way to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so at their, at their foundational level, both parties actually agree on – almost all of the blatant white supremacist racism and sexism that exists within our country. The, one of the ways I look at it, and I, I, I said this very clearly during the 2016 election, it's also pretty clear now. You know, when you have Donald Trump advocating to make America great again, and you have in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, this year it's Joe Biden saying, well, America's already good. You know, like America's already great. Um, you know, they both agree our past, our history are great. They disagree if we were great today. One mm-hmm. said yes, the other said no. And so, so this was a challenge. Even, even when you go back to the 2016 election, right? So Donald Trump said America's, make America great again. Hillary Clinton said America's great already. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama jumps into the fray and he says America's already great. And then Cory Booker, who, was a presidential candidate this last year, but in 2016, he was an aspiring um, freshman senator. And he was on the main stage endorsing Hillary Clinton. And in his remarks, he acknowledged that the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as savages. He acknowledged that the Constitution excludes women. He acknowledged the three-fifths compromise, which were all very courageous because most politicians at that level don't acknowledge any of these flaws. But he ended that section of his speech by telling the audience that this doesn't detract from our nation's greatness. Now, he would never say that to a room full of African-Americans. Right. He would never say that to a room full of Native peoples. He would never say that to a room full of women. The reason he said it is because the way that you make yourself safe, if you're a person of color, to white landowning men is you tell them how exceptional they are. And so this is the – so the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is one is explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacist. That's the Republicans. And we have the Democrats who are implicitly racist and sexist mm-hmm. and white supremacist. And we have the exact same thing this year with Joe Biden and with, and with um, Donald Trump. One is explicit and over the top, and I would even argue more honest. And then the other, who is implicit and is going to try and look like he's your friend and he's the nice guy, when yet he's still advocating for the same status quo that the other side is advocating for. And so, so much of the work that I do each in my campaign is is I actually have to spend more time critiquing the left than I do the right. The right's easy. You know, Donald Trump literally was – asking his supporters to sacrifice their lives so his ego could be fed at a rally in Tulsa this weekend. I mean, it doesn't get much more simplistic and blatant than that, how little he has a value for the life, not only of people of color, but of his supporters, has no regard for the value of their lives. That's, that's pretty clear. That's simple. That's easy to point out. That's, that's very, very, very simple. So Biden's going to be much more nuanced. And he's going to make the safe argument. And he's going to say, try to say the right things. But ultimately, he's advocating for the same status quo that the rest of us. And so he is, is you know, so right now we're having this whole discussion about police reforms and defunding the police. And President Trump is calling for reforms while standing with police officers and openly advocating for the institution of policing. Joe Biden is calling for reforms and yet saying defunding the police is too far too extreme. But we should maybe talk about that, but we can't really. So he's, he's trying to find a way, what Joe Biden's trying to do is he's trying to find a way of, of how far does he need to go to keep his people of color supporters, African-Americans primarily, Mm -hmm. to keep them happy before he starts losing the money and the support and the vote of white people, which is his primary concern. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's gonna nuance things a whole lot more. And so when when I've been watching the debate back and forth between the two of them about reforming our policing system, by and large, they're both saying pretty much the same thing. One's a bit more nuanced than the other, the other is a bit more blatant and raw, but they're both, they're both advocating to keep generally the status quo, which is neither one of them are advocating for the abolition of slavery. And you can pass all the reforms you want, but if you don't actually remove the institution of slavery from the constitution, your reforms are not going to go very far. And so this is Absolutely. how you can tell that they're, they're, they're pretty much two peas in a pod. I mean, they're both white landowning men from the 1% who represent the very institution of their parties. You know? I, and so there's not a, there's, they actually have a lot more in common than they do that are dissimilar to each other. Yes, Donald Trump is going to go out and hold a rally for. Well, he was hoping for twenty thousand people, but I think the, the the Gen Z kind of kind of bought up a lot of his tickets. It sounded like, but he was hoping for this massive rally in Tulsa. Now, Joe Biden is not going to go out and have a massive rally, at least not yet. But he still is beginning a public campaign schedule. He did have. A gathering in Pennsylvania this past week. He is starting to have a public campaign schedule. And this is while numbers of COVID 19 infections are on the rise in many states throughout the country. And globally, the, we are at some of the highest rates of infection of COVID 19. And which are the communities that are the most vulnerable? African Americans and Natives. Mm-hmm. We lead the and way so, you know,
0: everything that's happening like that, we lead the way, uh including incarceration. Yeah. The only people incarcerated more than African
4: Americans are Native Americans. Right. And so and, yeah, and so and 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 so President Trump is gonna push the boundaries, but Joe Biden will follow behind. He will do it in a more mellow way less dramatic, less explicit, but he's going to follow up behind. And so, again, this is where my campaign is, is – it's so easy to draw the distinction between myself and these other two candidates because they actually have a lot more in common than they have that are not in common um, when, when you get down to what they're really advocating for and what they're really trying to do, um, which is to maintain the status quo. And so, so yeah, I've been I've been working on that messaging. I'm most active on my social media with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But we've been trying to draw those distinctions, and especially with a lot of the racial issues that have come up within the past month, um, you know, we've really been, especially we've been pointing a lot to this issue of abolishing slavery. And I'm trying to get. The voters in the U.S. Just our citizens to understand that if we don't address it at this foundational level, we're never going to get change. Nothing is ever going to change if we don't actually just deinstitutionalize white supremacy and remove this constitutional protection for slavery. And you can you can debate it. reforms until you're blue in the face, but if we're not going to abolish slavery, then there's no sense in even having the conversation.
0: As we say here on Abolition Today, you cannot reform a crime against humanity. By definition, it must be abolished. And if you're focusing on reforming a crime against humanity, you are focusing on the wrong thing. You won't reform genocide. You won't reform murder. You won't reform sexual assault. And you certainly can't reform slavery. So we are with you on that. And I'm glad you brought up the left and the right And uh, Joe Biden. Here, I know in all of our research and our literature, we see him as an architect of slavery and genocide because he helped to write the, uh, didn't help it, he actually wrote the crime bill, which we're still suffering from today. So his body count is already in the millions, and that is unforgivable. You know, on the left, they tell us, or the narrative is, that uh, because of conditions and the environment and the circumstances, we're criminals. And on the right, they tell us we're just born that way. But they both agree that we're criminals. And that is intolerable in today's society coming from uh, the ruling political structures. And that's why we're glad that we have offered our listeners and followers and the people in the abolitionist community a third option. And his name is Mark Charles, and you can find him at markcharles2020.com. Let's make this thing happen and show our real power. Mark, I'd like to give you the opportunity to – so whatever you want to say uh, as final comments and if you could maybe offer some kind of prayer in your native tongue for us we would be so appreciative
4: yeah well thank you very much for allowing me to, to join you today um, it's been an honor to talk with you about this very important issue of abolishing slavery I think it's some of the deep foundation level work we have to do in our country um, you know as I've been running for president and have been really trying to engage this dialogue about how do we build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. Um, we have to get down to these foundational level issues. And one of the things that we're trying to do as a, as a campaign is because I'm an independent, um, we have to get on the ballot in all 50 states. And so we are working very hard right now to get on the ballot in in as many states as possible. Due to COVID-19 and our inability to collect signatures physically right now, um, a lot of our process has been put on hold. But we're working very hard at the moment in the state of New Mexico, uh, the state of um, Alaska, Illinois, North Carolina, uh, North Dakota, or not North Carolina, North Dakota and New Hampshire. Um, and Oklahoma to get on the ballot in those states. And so if people go to our website, which is markcharles2020.com, and click on the ballot access link, they can um, find out what we're doing in all 50 states to get on the ballot in the state that they live in. And in the states I mentioned, they can actually download the petition, um, sign it, and mail it in to us and help us get on the ballot in their state. And so we're working very hard right now. We've actually had one of our best fund—we've had our best fundraising month of the entire campaign this month right now, in June of this current month. Uh, we've raised about eleven thousand seven hundred dollars so far this month, which is very good for an independent campaign. It's—it's um, it's, you know a rounding error for the other campaigns. I think Joe Biden raised eighty-one million uh, last month, and Donald Trump raised seventy-four million but uh, we are definitely growing. Our campaign is growing right now. Our social media has been exploding, um, especially as we've been having this conversation around race and um, we've been focusing a lot on the issue of reforming our criminal justice system and I've been introducing this issue of abolishing slavery. We've gained a a lot of Um, platform in the past few weeks past few months so I encourage your listeners go to our website markcharles 2020.com you can donate to us you can get our mailing list you can check out our ballot ballot access plan in the state where you live and we are really trying to build a movement from the ground up Um, and we are trying to convince people that not only do we have the best platform and the, the best vision of this campaign but we can actually make these changes. You know, the two-party system tries to convince people that we have to keep things in the two-party system, which is never going to lead to to systemic change. Um, that's the way the status quo is maintained. So we're working very hard to convince people that, no, we actually are able to do things like this. We can actually change our foundations. We can edit the Constitution. We can abolish slavery. We can, you know build a nation where we the people mean to all the people. It doesn't. It's not that complex of a job, but we need people to get on board. We need pe- people to believe that this kind of change can actually happen. And so it's been a pleasure to be with you on your show this week. I thank you very much um, for letting me be here. And um, in our language, we would say, nashana, uh, which means, By our prayers, we will be able to walk in harmony. We'll be able to walk in beauty, Um, and so that—that's the prayer that I leave with your people. And among our our people, we would say, "Walk in beauty." Um, And so, my hope, my prayer is that we will learn how to walk in beauty together.
0: I believe I thank both you, said myself, and our listeners when I say thank you for being here today, and giving us uh, more hope because that's what we needed more than anything else was hope in these dark days. And you have offered that to yeah. us. And we're going to do what we can to make sure that uh, we see this election successful for you. I would like to also offer my services as a consultant on this particular topic. I doubt if there's anybody in the country that would know more than me about it. So uh, I want to stay in contact with you and help you move forward.
4: So feel free. And give my thanks to Essay, too. She is wonderful. I was, Essay does a great job for us. She's been with us almost from the beginning. And I will definitely pass that on to her, and yes, I'm very, very grateful that she's working with our campaign. Thank you. I definitely would like to take you up on your offer to do some consulting with you because we need input as we try to move this forward. You know, one of the things we're trying to do, and I'll I'll end with this, is there's a native elder, his name is George Erasmus, and uh, he's from the Dene people in Canada. And he said that where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build community, he says, you have to start by creating common memory. I love that quote because I think it gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, which is we do not have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery, expansion, opportunity, and exceptionalism. And we have are communities of color and other marginalized communities that have the lived experience of stolen land and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of internment camps and Indian boarding schools and Indian massacres, of segregation, of families being ripped apart at our borders. And there's no common memory. And I think this is one of the reasons why community is so poor in our country, especially across racial lines. And so as I am doing this work to fix our foundations, as I am laying out this vision to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people, as I am trying to abolish slavery, the way I want to do this, and the, the framework I want to do this within, is within this idea of creating a common memory so that as a nation, Regardless of our race or our ethnic heritage or our sexual orientation or our gender, we can find a way to have healthier community. And I think that's what we're all looking for.
0: Yes, sir. And I thank uh, you for uh,
4: being, a, being a part of helping making that happen. So thank you very much for that. Indeed, brother. Uh, we're very appreciative you, sir. Okay.
6: Yeah, I'm just very appreciative that you took the time out of your schedule. I know you're very busy, you know, and to come in and, you know, address us and address our audience. You know, I'm sure that they're very pleased with everything that they heard this evening. We're going to get a lot of feedback, I'm sure, throughout the week, you know, from our listeners. But, yeah, I'm just i just very grateful. And we definitely wish you the best. And, of course, you know, we're here, you know, anytime you want to come back and, you know, Give us an update as to what's going on With the campaign, we're definitely here for it
4: Well, thank you very much I would love to do that And I will have, I'll have—I'll make sure that essay keeps in touch And uh, we'll definitely be in talks As we continue moving forward With this platform So we can get slavery abolished Once and for all in our country So, Shahat, uh, and thank you very much Amen Well,
0: for everybody that's listening The show is not over But the commentary is about to come to a conclusion we're going to offer our final comments for the evening, give you a quote to remember, and then we're going to go into our Bridging the Gap series with Ossie Davis reads Frederick Douglass. This week uh, is pretty amazing. It's certainly want to tune in to hear that at the end of the show. So, Yusuf, uh, I'll start with you, closing comments and quotes.
6: Sure. My quote for this week comes from Frederick Douglass's 1886 uh, speech on the 24th anniversary of the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which he called the stupendous fraud. But his quote is, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe.
0: Thank you, brother. My quote is also from Frederick Douglass, and it's from his speech in 1888 in Washington, D.C., where he denounced the emancipation as a stupendous fraud. And he said, I admit that the Negro, and especially the plantation Negro, the tiller of the soil, has made little progress from barbarism to civilization and that he is in a deplorable condition since his emancipation, that he is worse off in many respects than when he was a slave. I am compelled to admit, but I contend that the fault is not his, but that of his heartless accusers. He is the victim of a cunningly devised swindle, one which paralyzes his energies, suppresses his ambitions, and blasts all his hopes and as though he is nominally free, he is actually a slave. So I here and now denounce this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fall Afford upon him, a afford upon the world It was not meant to be so by Abraham Lincoln It was not meant to be so by the Republican Party But whether so meant or not a lie Keeping the word of the promise to the ear and breaking it to the heart Make sure you check us out next week uh, Yusef will give you the details and he will introduce the next segment Until the 28th next week I'll see you then Peace.
6: And going into our final segment With Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass part 14 In our Bridging the Gap series This one is entitled The Civil War Begins This will be followed by War Performed by Nas Featuring Ray From the Birth of a Nation The Inspired By album We'll be back June 28th With episode 16 Eating Jim Crow, and Part Two of a Message to the People from Angola. Our supporters in Angola Prison are organizing a listening party for next week. Until then, think about abolition today.
0: Peace. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Today. Then came
8: the abolition. question: abolition. What will the South do about it? Will she eat her bold words and submit to the verdict of the people, or proceed to secede from the Union? The inquiry was an anxious one, and the blood of the North stood still, waiting for the response. It had not long to wait. The response of the slaveholders to the glorious assertion of freedom and independence on the part of the North in the triumphant election of Abraham Lincoln was the dismemberment of the Republic and the establishment of the Confederate States, a government based upon human slavery. As a result of the shameful and shocking course followed by President Buchanan, one after another the southern states were allowed to secede. Even men who had heretofore resisted the slave power bent before the southern storm and were ready to purchase peace at any price, especially at the expense of the Negro slaves. Everything that could be demanded by insatiable pride and selfishness on the part of the slaveholding South or could be surrendered by abject fear and servility on the part of the North, had able and eloquent advocates. Happily for the cause of human freedom and for the final unity of the American nation, the South was mad and would listen to no concessions. They had made up their minds that they would secede from the Union. They had come to hate everything which had the prefix free, free soil, free states, free territories, free schools, free speech, and freedom generally, and they would have no more such prefixes. And so the slaveholders plunged madly into the bloody vortex of rebellion and war. On April 12, 1861, the batteries of Charleston Harbor in South Carolina were opened upon the starving garrison at Fort Sumter. In a moment... The northern lamb was transformed into a lion. Gone were the months of appeasement when politicians and businessmen had vied with each other to purchase peace and prosperity for the north by granting the most demoralizing concessions to the slave power. The cannons booming over Charleston compelled everyone to elect between patriotic fidelity and pro-slavery and treason. As the north took to arms, I wrote in my paper, we say out of a full heart, And on behalf of our enslaved and bleeding brothers, thank God. From the first, I, for one, saw in this war the end of slavery. And truth requires me to say that my interest in the success of the North was largely due to this belief. True it is that this faith was many times shaken by passing events, but never destroyed. When Secretary Seward instructed our ministers to say to the governments to which they were accredited, that, terminate however it might, the status of no class of the people of the United States would be changed by the rebellion, that the slaves would be slaves still, that the masters still. When General McClellan and General Butler warned of the slaves in advance that if any attempt was made by them to gain their freedom, it would be suppressed with an iron hand, when the government persistently refused to employ colored troops, I still believed and spoke as I believed all over the North that the mission of the war was the liberation of the slave, as well as the salvation of the Union. And hence, from the first, I reproached the North that they fought the rebels with only one hand when they might strike effectively with two, that they fought with their soft white hands while they kept their black iron hand chained and helpless behind them, that they fought the effect while they protected the cause, and that the Union cause would never prosper till the war assumed an anti-slavery attitude and the Negro was enlisted on the loyal side. In every way possible, in the columns of my paper and on the platform, by letters to friends at home and abroad, I did all that I could do, to impress this conviction upon the country. Many and grievous disasters on the field of battle were needed to educate the loyal nation and President Lincoln up to the realization of the necessity, not to say the justice, of the position that the war could only be won by freeing the slaves and arming the freedmen.
3: That I built to defend and protect this bold heart, this bold heart. The way you marched into my home, not few big army with the weapon on your arm. Yes, you struck
9: straight with your cold heart, your cold heart. I'm like Nat, I'm like Nat. I'm a man of God, but where is Christ at? And even though my name is Nas, I am like Nat. Is this me declaring war white flags? I now know why I was even born to strike back. A full moon up in the sky, that's a sign that it's time to get my liberation, the perfect configuration. It's the birth of a nation, midwife black, mother, father Caucasian, my blood Indian native. So now I'm contemplating being like Nat. About to show you what I'm made of, I'm what races are afraid of, no mule in the 40 acres. And despite that, watch out for the traders. And when they say make America greater, can do they mean make us all slaves Is this again? Don't more? no? Be a victim no more, depicted as a criminal, especially when you're poor. Why doesn't the government order capital punishment to officers who racial and for slugs in us? Makes me think they want us to stink. on the brink of insanity. We screaming for justice, they send tanks. Demanding me, demanding we protect the family anarchy. Ku Klux planning and him demanding he damage me. So my fantasy is every single one of us come against the evil divided people. with common sense. The fury, I hope the whole world hearing no justice. So I became a revolutionary. No matter if you're red, white, black. If you want freedom, if then we're all like For a better America It's a little Nat Turner In every one of us No matter if you're red, white, black If you want freedom Then we're all like Nat
3: War War War. Declare war
9: It's time Let the spirit of Nat Turner live Forever. Ever, 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 ever. Abolition. Abolition Abolition day.
1: Plus.